Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E. T-S. You know, I had told you earlier that I didn't have much confidence coming out of high school. And here I was doing something that I felt like was successful. And I was feeding on that, saying, oh, I can build a business. Oh, I can build a bigger business. I can build even a bigger business. I, I can even do a much bigger business. You know, I just, I kept, it just kept feeding on me. I mean, yes, I needed the income to support my family. But once, you know, once you get to making $100,000 a year, you don't need that money. I mean, I would say it was all about proving to myself that I could do something that was successful. My guest today is Hilliard Cruz. Hilliard is an entrepreneur, investor, and philanthropist. Hilliard left his family's company and started MCR Safety in 1974. As of 2019, MCR Safety had sales of $255 million worth of personal protective equipment. Three times Hilliard's company, MCR Safety, has made Inc. 500 fastest growing private companies. But there's one thing you may not know about Hilliard. His first year in business, he made just $3,000 and got a job working at night at a trucking line to supplement his family's income. Hilliard and MCR Safety averaged more than 80% compounded growth annually for his first 10 years in business. In addition to founding and selling MCR Safety to Bunzel Corporation, Hilliard also is the largest shareholder of Triumph Bank. He's a real estate developer, venture capital investor, and philanthropist. At a great time with Hilliard, where we discuss the fun you have when you find what you're good at and how the market rewards you. While leaving a family business can be a good thing and what it took for him to get MCR off the ground. How he won with service and why he's adamant about continuous improvement. The impact of selling through distributors and why he couldn't have grown his company this quickly any other way. How he is using his family office to accelerate the pace of change for causes he cares the most about and more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Hilliard Cruz. Hilliard, good morning. Thank you for joining me on the show. My pleasure, Sam. Curious, I saw a speech that you gave where you served two years in the Army. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Served in Alaska. It was, you know, most everybody... uh, was drafted and went sent to Vietnam at the time, just during the Vietnam War, of course. And I was I was lucky to get sent to Alaska. In fact, I remember when I got my my papers, it said uh, Fairbanks AK, and I looked at it. And I said, 
Fairbanks, Arkansas? I thought, <laughs> where in the world is this? And I thought, hey, Kayak. No, that's not right. Where's AK? That's Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was a lot better being cold at than shot at. And uh, I had a good good experience up there. I mean, you know, it, I mean, I say it's good. Some, some memories that uh, one memory from that uh, service was that uh, the we had a record low temperature of 72 below zero when I was on up there and I was on guard duty at 50 below zero guard uh, guard uh, uh, a junkyard which there's a lot of people out stealing 50 below okay right. anyway. yeah <laughs> but then the next summer after it was 72 below and six months later it went to 104 above wow that was a 176 degree change it was a crazy year you know i know that your your father started a company with a partner and then i know you're with that and i think we'll spend some time there but then obviously you said you felt like it was time to to go on your own and i also read or i heard you in a speech where the first year after you went out on your own your company made three thousand dollars that year and you tried to get a job at fedex at night and they didn't hire you, so then you worked for a trucking company. Yeah, I loaded. I loaded. Ended up loading plane, uh, loading trucks instead of planes. FedEx said they wouldn't give me the job because they didn't think I could handle it. I had a desk job, so I ended up having to load trucks instead of planes. Yes, <laughs> and, sir. And much less paper hour. <laughs> yes, sir. And so I was curious: did that experience in the army was that formative in you being able or willing to sacrifice and endure so much when you went out on your own? No, I really, I really don't think so. I don't think that had anything to do with it. Uh, yeah. So the army was just you put your time in, you served, and then when it was over, you had kind of moved on. But the things that kind of drove you, they were already there. I guess is that what you're saying? Well, uh, I think yeah, I think they were going there, and I think what happened when I worked. Uh, that my dad's company was, was Great Southern Corporation. He and two other guys started that company. And uh, I worked there as a senior in high school, worked this summer after my senior in high school. And then I, then I worked as I went to University of Memphis. I worked part time. And, and then actually in the last couple of years, I worked full time. Last couple of years, I worked full time at there and went to school part time. It took me six years to get out of the University of Memphis. Yes, sir. I guess to provide some context for anybody that is listening that is not familiar with kind of the genesis of, of your work. Did your dad, did his company, did they do similar work to protective gear the way that the way that you built MCR or was it different lines? No, it was a, it was a different company. The similarities was that uh, they did do some importing and that's where I learned about importing, but they, they did some wholesaling and importing and they sold to uh, mainly uh, small chains like Walmart and also little distributors to, to the mom and pop grocery stores and hardware stores throughout the U.S. Keep in mind, this was back in the 60s, okay? We had a lot of small stores then. You know, things are going to change now, you know, so much now, but, but it's a lot different then. We had what we called, uh, was called wagon jobbers back then. We sold those wagon jobbers. Those wagon jobbers would put all their, a lot of their goods into their truck, and they would drive around these small hardware and, and grocery stores up throughout the country, and and sell them goods. 
were they just a diverse plethora of goods or anything specifically mostly to the hardware stores or to these other mom and pop stores? No, it was a variety of items that, you know, you, you just had that, that, that the small stores needed. Some of it was hardware items. Some of it was sewing noses like sewing needles. You know, we had everything from selling BB, BB shot to anything a little grocery store in the country would need. We, well, I, we had a lot of that at Great Southern. Yes, sir. And then you said a few years into that, I guess maybe into your late 20s, you were handling negotiations with the bank and all the financing. And obviously you said that you were going to be heir to that company. And then that's when you decided to quit your job and go start your own. Is that right? Yeah, but I'll I tell you what, I'll back you up a little bit there. When, when I first started, I started, you know, I was going to the University of Memphis and, and high school, but I started in the, in the warehouse and packaging and stuff like that. And then I learned, went into, you know, shipping, helping control the in, inventory, got into inventory control. And then, uh, then I went, then I started helping in purchasing. And uh, from memory, I would say that that, uh, after I started in purchasing, it was in there a couple of years, I think I was drafted into the army. When I came back, I worked for the company as four years, I think. And that's, and during that four year period is when I became, you know, more influential in the business and, and really uh, managed some of the salespeople, uh, you know, ahead of the purchasing department. And I also, in the last year or two, uh, negotiated our credit line with uh, with the bank. So you were kind of groomed by your father and his partners to learn how to really start operations with that company. Yeah, I felt like I was in line to, to lead the company, but I also had a brother working in the company, and he felt like he was probably in line for it too. So, uh, but that was, and that was a little bit of a problem that. Uh, you know, it was just too much. It was too much family. We, I mean, I love my family, but there was too many of us. So, you know, I had uh, two brothers already working there, and um, actually, I guess by the time I left, I had three brothers working there, and then the other two partners of my dad's, they had boys too, and that, that worked in the business. So there was, you know, there was about ten of these kids in there uh, that were coming through, coming through in the business, and it was just. Too much of it, and that, and I felt like that my dad was the biggest partner, a big, uh, the largest owner in the company, largest stockholder, and I, I felt like it, I mean he was the president, and it felt like it was his company, and I don't know, I just felt like I I was independent, I just wanted to do something myself, but what that company did give me though, they gave me a lot of experience, and also. I came into the company probably with a lack of confidence and I exited the company with confidence, okay? Because I, I learned that I could do, I was real good in certain areas of business. And when I came in, I really didn't know anything about business. So I guess you're saying kind of leading up to this experience in your mid-20s or so or early 20s, you didn't have a lot of experience or self-confidence based off of maybe high school or those earlier years. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I did I would, I, yeah, I would felt like I was a little small in sports. I liked to play sports, but just didn't really uh, ever make any of the high school teams. You know, I, I did, I did good as a B student in school, but I was a little bit shy. So, uh, you know, I'm not a very outgoing student person, and, and I'm not a very, I'm still not very outgoing, really. Yes, sir. Did you question, I guess, yourself prior to this experience with work? Could you say that when you were a B student or 
you weren't that great at sports, but you, you tried hard and you wanted you liked it. Did you have doubts or were you kind of just still locked in on finding your path at some point? I think I was, I, I was, yeah, I was probably locked in on fi- I don't know if locked in is the right word. I just was going along, okay? <laughs> and and when I started the University of Memphis, I was the first person in my family to ever go to university. And so uh, I didn't have any consultations with the uh, school uh, counselors about uh, edu- my uh, college degrees. I don't know why. But anyway, so I went to school and I said, well, I guess I'll, I guess I'll be a math teacher. OK, that's that's when I went to school thinking, well, it's maybe I'll be a math teacher. And uh, it, it, when I started working in the business, I realized, oh, I like business. I like this. You know, and I'm good at this. I can do this. And uh, and so I, I, I changed over to being interested in business. Is there anything you can speak to? You know, anybody that's in business or has been in business knows that partnerships can be very messy. Family can be very messy at times. But it, I thought it was very neat. Two days ago when I talked to you and you were talking about working with your brother on something, you were talking about walking two miles with your mother, which I hope to get to later on in our conversation. But is there anything you can speak to about that experience where you saw kind of the writing on the wall? You saw how many other sons or other partner sons were involved in the business and you, were, you felt you were clear on what you could do. How did that go with you and your father? I mean, is there anything you can speak to that to handle that well, I guess. My father, of course, was running the company. He gave me a lot of uh, chances to do different things in the company and learn different aspects of the business. But he also gave my brother, who's a three years older than me, some of the same chances too. So my brother and I were actually uh, competing probably for the presidency. And, uh, you know, we had uh, probably didn't have the best relationship at that time because we were competing for that position in the future we thought you know and uh, and this bothered this bothered me and that's one of the reasons i left the company i said well i'll just do it on my own and I, you know i don't have to fight all this and the other uh, shareholders family members were in there too but they were much younger they came three or four years after my brother and i so uh they weren't really in the competition on you know for becoming the president or whatever so i guess what you're saying is that sense of choosing to move on and go out on your own was probably helpful for family dynamics and relationships in the long run yeah oh I, I, yes very much so my brother and i all my brothers and i have real good relationship but you know our relationship at that time was strained but once i moved out it was real good yes sir last question i got kind of on this period i know you went to Fraser High School, which for people that don't live in Memphis or are not in the United States, that's a kind of more of a rural high school, correct? That's just a public high school outside of a city that has about 600,000 people. Is that a fair description? I wouldn't say it was rural, but it was a suburban suburban high school. You know, it, it was a decent school at, at, at the time. It, it, uh, it uh, deteriorated over the years. And then obviously University of Memphis which is, you know, in a very impressive place right now and has a ton of momentum. But I guess historically, looking back, it wasn't the same as going to a prestigious university or anything like that. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. But, you know, as I told you, I was just passing time as uh, when I started in the business in, in my last years in high school. And I'm, I'm just, I, you know, I don't know, I wasn't really thinking too much about my future. And I didn't even apply for the University of Memphis 
until a day or two before the deadline. And you know, and it's crazy. I mean, I, somebody asked me, uh, where are you going to go to school? And I said, uh, I guess I'm going to go to the University of Memphis. And they said, well, have you applied? And I said, well, no, I hadn't. And they said, well, yeah, I think you. I think next week's the last week you can apply. <laughs> and, then, and so I said, well, I guess I better get on the ball. You know, <laughs> The uh, university experience was nothing known to any of my family. They didn't know anything about it. I mean, they didn't know what to do. They, and as I said, I didn't have any counselors at Fraser. Uh, I got to admit, uh, the counselors should have had meetings with me as a as a senior and give me some guidance, but they didn't. And I didn't. I I was too stupid to ask for it. I guess. <laughs> yes, sir. And so I guess with that, if somebody's asking you today, how much does it actually matter? how nice of a high school you go to or how prestigious of a university you go to? What, what would be your answer to that? Well, I think a high school education is very important. I mean, I think there's a lot there and I think you can learn a lot in the university also, but you know, I don't believe that you have to have a university degree. I think you need, it's, about, it's almost imperative that you have a high school degree. But, you know, it depends on it depends on the person. I mean, with a high school degree, you can go out and find a job. And uh, in that job, you, what I'd say is you could probably learn a lot about a business that you're working in, and you can rise up through the ranks. Uh, it's, it's obviously hard if you don't have a degree, but if it's a small business, you can probably do that. And uh, you can also learn something about a business. You say, well, okay, I'm going to start a business that's similar to that, maybe a Maybe a little different, but you learn something in that business that you think would apply to another scenario, and you start a business that's somewhat somewhat similar but different. You know, maybe it's a pizza restaurant, and you you know learn something about the restaurant industry, and you uh, want you can start a hamburger joint. I don't know, but anyway. Yes, sir. No, and we'll come back to this later in the conversation. But since I've started doing this work, and I've, I'm probably 120, maybe 130 interviews in, and I do it publicly and then I do it privately. But one of the things that I've taken away the most that I had no clue prior is to meet with men and women like yourself, where they talk about the, one of the biggest joys of building a company that's very successful and creates a lot of jobs is taking a lot of people that might've got overlooked off a resume, might've got overlooked off of a college degree, whatever that might be. And they've got them in and they've put them in, a, in an environment, in a system for them to really flourish and create a lot of opportunity for themselves, for the company and for their families. And, you know, you and I have gotten together once outside of this in person, which was awesome, but I've never, I don't think I've ever shared this, but I mean, there's a guy in my head right now that is uh, some sort of executive with your company, a young guy, but uh, he got plugged in early and I think he started wrapping boxes in your warehouse. And I don't know. It's pretty amazing when to ask you a question like that with the reputation that you have from a business standpoint, and then to also dig into your background, and then to also see the beauty of entrepreneurship and how it creates all these experiences for people around the country, and just to kind of connect the dots on that. Well, I, I think that one of the things that I did is I hired a really lot of young people that I just liked their personality and felt like they were educated enough to, you know, had a good head on their shoulders. And uh, so those pe- those people grew with me in the organization. And uh, I was not real good at hiring 
top executives from, you know, with executive search and hiring top executives, I, I promoted from within. And, and that gave a lot of opportunity to a lot of people. And I, I guess a lot of people appreciated that. But that, that was my that was my style. I like promoting from within because I knew what I had. I knew what the person abilities were more than if I you know, went to executive search firm, you hire somebody and then you get them and six months later you say, well, gosh, this is not even working out. This guy has a terrible personality. <laughs> yes, sir. And so that gave a lot of people opportunity. So when you say good head on your shoulders, people you like being around, people you felt that had a good foundation, what was it? Was it just somebody that was respectful, somebody that was on time or early, somebody that worked hard, somebody that could take feedback? Uh, how would you think through that in your head to find those people and then put them in certain situations? How would you read people in that way? Well, I would just ask them, you know, I would have an idea and I would ask them what they would think about this idea and they would come up with whatever their response would be. I, I could tell whether they really were thinking about it right, not necessarily agreeing with me, but they may come up with something I hadn't thought about. That was good. Or, you know, but sometimes uh, people come up with something and say, well, you know, that doesn't make sense because you're not thinking about this, you know. And uh, so I guess that that was what made me judge them as having their heads on straight, if I if you say. I like people that are analytical, uh, think about what ifs and stuff, okay, uh, you know, and what the problems are with you make it, you decide to go this way, okay, you're going to go that way. What if something doesn't go as planned? What do you do? So there's a lot of what ifs, and people need to be thinking about that. So you started, you went out on your own, uh, your wife, Harriet, I think she was just pregnant. Is that correct? When you, right when you went out? When I started my business, she was not pregnant. She got, she was, became pregnant about six months later. And uh, so I'm born in the second year of business. I guess what's kind of prompting this question, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing an interview with a, an investor and he was talking about a company that he is investing in and just why he loves that CEO, why he loves that company. And he says, you know, a lot of people that come into entrepreneurship from a corporate background. They're not willing to wear whatever hat is needed. They're not willing to do whatever it takes. They're not scrappy uh, from the way it was described. And so I thought about when I was preparing for my interview with you, I was thinking about that first year when you said your company, I think netted maybe off 110K in revenue or 100, whatever that specific number was, you you netted about 3,000 in profit. And you said that you went and got, you know, as I talked about earlier, or you talked about too, you tried to get a job with FedEx, they didn't hire you, you got a job at a trucking company working nights, and you said that you would pack boxes for your own company till 3pm every day. And then you would take your truck to the trucking company that you were going to work at that night. And then you would ship out because you had a sense of urgency about shipping things out the same day. And then you'd work at night and then obviously go back to your day job. Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, yeah, you did. And I, I was, I'm a, I'm a hard worker. I'm focused on my business. And to the extent that I may be too focused on the business sometimes, and my wife had to get me out of it to think a little bit about the family sometimes. But I was focused on the business and, and worked extremely hard. I, and and I did everything. I When I started the business, there was only me. So I knew how to do everything in the business. 
as it grew, I pretty much knew the jobs until, you know, we got to 25 or 30 people. Then it started getting a little bit harder to know exactly. But, you know, most all the, the, uh, the we j- had jobs that we had in the t- first 25 years. I, I guess I, I designed those jobs about how we would go about it, how we would go about investigating the fire, what we needed to do, if there was a problem with the shipment or whatever. And also, I set up all of our computer systems. I had some IT experience at the University of Memphis schooling there. So I was pretty good at setting up the systems to run the company by. I didn't write the programs. I, 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 I just said, this is the, what I want, the results I need. You give me the program to make it happen. What do you think gave you a sense of clarity to where you could be so confident in betting on yourself and your own thinking and how to build it out? Well, I, as I told you, I gained confidence at the previous employer, so I felt like I could make this work. I was only trying to start a small business. I was not trying to start a big business. I envisioned a business with 10 or 12 employees is all I was envisioning, okay? So it was not a big business, but I had a, a lot of confidence in in, in, in myself as how to, how to go about things to make them more efficient. Now, I was not the, I was not the greatest salesperson or marketer. And I, I, other, when you talk about other entrepreneurs, some, some people go from a different direction. They're just a great salesperson, a great marketer. They may not know anything about accounting. I mean, I was different. I knew, I knew all the accounting operations uh, I was uh, really good at operations and streamlining operations, and I was a a decent salesman. Okay, so I, I just say entrepreneurs are different; they come from diff- different avenues. I, you know, I think I'd say probably most two important is ones that some people are operations uh, mainly, and some people are are sales or marketing uh, may, uh, mostly, and they can hire some good people as partners to help them in the areas that they're that they're not good in did you ever think i may have made a mistake when you had to go work at that trucking company at night oh yeah in the first year i i I wondered about it you know i started the company during the middle of the 1974 recession i had planned to start it six months earlier but i got talked out of it by my uh my family my dad and uh, but i finally came back six months later says no I just really want to do something on my own. It's, you know, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be as big a company as y'all, but I just want to do something, a little small company on my own and, and just be independent because I, I wanted, I wanted to be my decisions of what we're doing. And uh, so I started, I started a company that, that was going a little bit different. I mean, we were, we we're going to the personal protective business and I was selling to uh, wholesalers who sold to the factories, their safety supply houses. And uh, that was different than what the, my previous company had. So it's a little bit different direction. But I felt like it was a good opportunity, and it was definitely a good opportunity. But when the recession hit, uh, it caused some problems. I had some problems with one of my suppliers. So, yes, in the first year, I thought, man, I think I may have made a big mistake. I may have to go beg for my job back. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I hung in there, and you know, a few months later, everything turned around, and it was, you know, it was fine. Yes, sir. When you say hung in there, I'm curious. What advice can you give? Because there's 
a few people that are coming to my head right now that are very well respected and well thought of from the outside looking in, but they've, you know, hit that same point until something gives, until something breaks to get to the other side of it. I'm just curious, anything like in that season, what were you thinking? How did you know when it was time to kind of leave that trucking company? How did you keep going in each day and, and on probably no sleep? What, what were you thinking? What advice can you share there to kind of gut it out in that season? Well, I guess I would be, I, I, I think at the time I probably was embarrassed that I hadn't done what I thought I could do. And I just said, well, I got to keep, just got to keep trying and see if I can make this work. You know, I'll give it another six months. If it doesn't work, I'll have to figure out something else. But in that six months period, I kept trying and it turned it around. I read a story about your second, you talked about two major challenges that first year. And the second one was the supplier to you for maybe some gloves or something. They came in too small and you had to go to the border to sell those. Is that true? Yeah. What, when I first uh, started business, basically I had mostly just one size gloves. I only had a, a, about 10 different styles of gloves. And most of them were one size or a men's large. But I got some men's medium in, and most of my customers, they weren't large enough for most of my my customers. So I sold them to a safety supply house who did business in Mexico, and that's how I got rid of them. Was that overwhelming at the time, or were you just like, golly, here we go, we got and just got to roll with it and went down to the border? Well, no, it wasn't that easy. I mean, <laughs> it may sound easy, but... Uh, I got them in. I probably thought, oh my God, this is a, you know, one fourth my net worth in this one shipment. And it's not, not, my customers don't want it. What the heck am I going to do? <laughs> and, you know, I finally found some customers that would take it. I didn't make any profit on that shipment, needless to say, probably lost money on it. But uh, I got, I did get rid of it and get cash back. And then I invested, made sure I got the right, I went to, another supplier and got the right size the reason i got the wrong size then was that um when you're making items like gloves it's 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 all sewing these were leather gloves and if they sew them correctly they're a good large size if they don't sew them correctly the size usually becomes smaller okay that so it's just taking up too much cloth in in the stitch okay or too much leather in the stitch that makes them small. And that's the reason these gloves are small. A lot of, that was a lot of the reason for it. This was in the latter part of the 70s, right? Uh, that Well, I started in 74. That that was in 74. That experience was in 74. Was OSHA 71? Yes. Okay. So this is part of the opportunity that you saw. This is at the very beginning of it. OSHA being the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which required the, the uh, factories to supply their workers with protector protective gear, whether it be gloves or chemical uh, suits or hard hats or what glasses, things like that. And so I guess what you're going back a little bit, you saw with your father's company, you saw, I guess, a more efficient way to grow revenue, provide a great service and let the distributors push the product. And so you kind of cut out a lot of the things that probably created friction or complications with that model. So then you saw a better way to do it and you're able to streamline things. Is that right? Well, I think what you're referring to is when I first started the business, I thought that I could 
possibly sell the factories direct, okay? Because that would, instead of going through a safety supply house, I could go through the factories direct and I could get a, a bigger markup in my product because I was going to the factory direct. But I was doing both of them. I was selling some safety supply houses and trying to sell factory direct. And I quickly realized that factory direct was going to take a lot more people to go out and call on the factories and a lot more work to get them. I didn't have those people. And I said, well, you know, it looks like to me I'm better off to sell through the safety supply people because they have salesmen and I can use their sales. They're already calling on these factories anyway, selling other products. So why not just sell it to them? Yes, I may make 15 or 16% gross profit instead of uh, 25 or 30, but I had less expense, okay? Right. So, and, uh, and I also realized that it was a lot easier to grow the business because these safety supply distributors already had the customers. A lot of times they were already selling gloves. So all I had to do was give them, I would just be another source for them to get their gloves from. And if they like my source, they put my gloves into those factors. So it was a lot much, much easier way to grow the business. I could never have grown the business going direct as fast as I did. And so you saw that and you kind of made that pivot early on. Yes. And you averaged 80% growth the first 10 years, right? Yeah. For the first 10 years, it was over 80% compounded growth rate. Yes, I think sir. it was 84% compounded, which I'm almost doubled every year. And it did double every year for the first probably six years. It's just in the last uh, year, seven through 10, it became a little slower. We were only, you know, probably making a 50 or 60% growth rate in the last, in seven, you know, the seven to 10 years. I heard a story from early on. You were driving by a warehouse and it was published online, and but it was, it's your good friend. Rick Spell, and he said that y'all were driving by a warehouse one day, and you said, got it right here, there's a bunch of 18-wheelers there, and you just said, I'm going to be that big one day. I saw that online. And then you also said, when you started the company, you didn't envision it to be the size that it's at now. I'm just curious. So to have a company that goes $33 million after 10 years, 115 after 20, what kicked in for you to just to not slow down and to keep accelerating because you said at the beginning, you didn't have these, these grand ambitious plans. Well, I didn't realize how big the market was. I mean, I had not done a lot of market research. I just know that factories needed gloves. And when I got into it, I realized that I, I had a really good model with my uh, telemarketing and sales, keep my sales costs down. And that uh, I had really good, uh, a service as uh, Memphis was a good distribution center. So I saw that it was easy to grow the business. And, you know, yeah, I was only hoping I could do three or four million dollars in business and have a nice little business. But when I saw I could grow it, I said, you know, why stop? I, I, could, I can make this a big business. So I just said, well, okay. So I just, every year, I just up my goal and made a bigger bit, you know, try to make a bigger business every year. Just kept growing. How are you able to kind of keep people engaged throughout this tremendous amount of growth as you just kind of hit the accelerator or kept up with the sales? I think we were all having a lot of fun because we, uh, first of all, we had company dinners every time we would have a record month. And since we're, we're growing fast, that 
we would have an all-time record month about eight times out of the year. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so that meant, I mean, we were having record, you know, dinners or record lunches for, you know, for the, the employees and just, you know, having fun with stuff like that. So everybody was really excited about growing the company with, you know, everybody's excited about growing it. And I guess everybody was for the most part centrally located except for your international facilities. Is that correct? Yeah, but I didn't have international facilities, uh, you know, for several years after I started. But everybody was located in Memphis. That may have helped. Oh yeah, yeah, man. Everything's located in Memphis for I would say for the first five years. I think that if I remember correctly, the first time we really had anything overseas was in '79 or '80 when I became a partners in a business in in uh, that manufactured gloves in Hong Kong. We later moved it to China. I've heard you talk about through another interview I watched, a lot of your competitors at that time would take three to four days to ship out the product and you shipped it out same day. So there was a sense of urgency there. And earlier in the conversation, I talked about when you were working a night job and you would take your truck, cut off orders by three, ship them out that day. So that seems very kind of foundational to who you are and your desire to want to provide your customers the best service possible. Was it hard to keep that sense of urgency as things continue to grow like they have and did and make people not default to a more slower or lazier way of working? Well, I, <laughs> I can remember one instance, uh, you know, I think at one point we got to where we, uh, any orders we got by noon, we got out the same day. We, this was after a few years. We it, it backed off to noon, and I went out and talked to my shipping manager. And I says, "You know, this is just not good enough. We're gonna have we're gonna have to get anything we get in by three o'clock. We're gonna have to get out uh, the same day." And he he didn't really think we could do it, so I had to replace it. Okay, <laughs> and. And um, it, it could be done. It was not that difficult. Yes, it was. It was a stress. There was some stress to it, but it could be done. So we did it. And uh, and after doing that, there were, we probably had twenty employees at that time. I remember everybody thinking, "Well, you know, we're not going to go backwards on service. If anything, we're going we're going we're going to go. We're going to extend. Uh, we're going to give you a better service. Not we can't go. We're not going back the other way." So it's it's a mindset of no service is everything. It's not everything, but you know service is extremely important, and we're going to give damn good service, and we're going to beat everybody in the industry. I don't care who they are. We're going to do better service than anybody. Yes, sir. So that conversation, you went out and talked to him. He might have just kind of said okay, and then he might have not followed up that way for a couple days. You might have had another conversation. He might have given you some pushback and then you said hey man this isn't working out let's move on is that kind of how it played out actually i don't remember now whether he was frustrated with me and quit or that i actually let him go or maybe it was a mutual decision i I really can't remember that i just remember having the conversation with him and he's saying that can't be done and i said it can be done and it will be done and you know over the next couple weeks uh, we parted company Yes, sir. Well, the reason I kind of doubled down on that, it's understood that the founder sets the tempo 
And that just seems like a very, it's a very clear moment where a kind of your behavior and move intention within the company to keep things moving, to keep it getting better. And then, you know, when people don't get on board, you know, it's just got to change. And then maybe you see something that someone else can't see, but it sounds like in that situation, the, the right answer would have been like, yes, sir, I can't see it, but we're going to give it all we got, I guess. Uh, that just seems like the alternative there. Yeah, well, it was, it was just part of our, you know, culture. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we were going to give the best service in the industry. And also, I would have to say there's another thing in my culture thing is we believed in changing things, okay? And we believed in continuing to look at things in operations and say, you know what? There's a better way to do this. And we change things a lot. Sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes I change a system three or four times in a year. People will say, "I'm sorry." I come up to them and say, "I'm sorry. I know I've changed this, but I, I still there's a better way. I, we, we got another better way to do this, and we're going to do it a different way now." Okay. <laughs> and that was early on. I just made several of those changes, and not always. Uh, I wouldn't say that. It was a wrong uh, decision to make the change that I made, but then I make that change. I said, "Well, that's a good change, but you know, this is even a better way to do it." <laughs> and here's a, here's another improvement we make to that. So, continuous improvement, I mean, is part of the culture. Hey, everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. What do you think you loved at that season? Was it that you loved having your own business and building it, doing a great service, taking care of people? Is it the money that you loved? Is it being on your own that you loved? I mean, because I saw another section on an interview I watched prior where you would prefer to just eat an oatmeal cookie for lunch and stay in your office and keep working. Like you didn't like the idea of going out to eat lunch with, you know, social, those things. But, you know, what kept you so consumed with the process and excellence. You know, I had told you earlier that I didn't have much confidence coming out of high school. And here I was doing something that I felt like was successful. And I was feeding on that, saying, oh, I can build a business. Oh, I can build a bigger business. I can build even a bigger build. I, I can I can even do a much bigger business. You know, I just I kept it just kept feeding on me. I mean, 
yes, I needed the income to support my family. But once, you know, once you get to making a hundred thousand dollars a year, you don't really need it, less than that at that time. Uh, you don't need that money. I mean, it's all, it was all about, I would say it was all about proving to myself that I could do something that was successful. And I, I would, I would say even at this point, I, I, I'm very confident in business. But I lack confidence in a lot of areas. I mean, I'm not good at big groups of people. Or I'm not that good socially, but well, no, I was just going to say, but I, I really, I respect it. And it was impressive because I watched you speak uh, one time when you were uh, on a video online for a society of entrepreneurs that you're a part of as I was doing my research. But you seem comfortable with kind of just being who you are. And you seem comfortable being a mathematics major. You seem comfortable being very analytical and, and very process-driven. I mean, I'm curious, is that true? And did that provide a sense of joy to kind of just be comfortable with who you are and, and the things that you care about? Oh, yeah. I'm very comfortable with myself. I'm, 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 I'm a little bit different than most people. And a lot of people that were really successful in business uh, probably would be a lot more social and a lot more uh, gifted to, to speak. Um, I, I was not very, very good, a very good speaker. I mean, in, in later years, I mean, I, I guess I learned to speak a little better. Some of the, some of the videos that you see may have been a little better, but I had some problems on the front end, but, uh, I, I'm just a more reserved person than a lot, than a lot of my fellow entrepreneurs. Do you think feeling more reserved or kind of doing your own thing, did that help you in business because you didn't get distracted with country club things or society things, status things? Man, I was focused on my business. I didn't, only other thing other than my business was my family. And as I said earlier, my wife had to ring me in some there to get me back on family sometimes because I was working too much. But uh, I didn't care about doing other things like playing golf or whatever. I, I, I did water ski, but that was the only activity I had outside of work. And uh, I didn't really care about doing other things because I was having fun growing my business. And I was feeling better about myself the whole time, and I was having fun, and it, it was fantastic. I, I just I, I can't believe it happened <laughs> like it did. <laughs> it's a wonderful story. Real quick before we move on to maybe a different part, um, telemarketing, you talk, you've talked about several times that your marketing strategy, your calling strategy, telemarketing strategy, that it took 15 years for your competitors to figure out how to do it. And you had a ton of success uh, doing this, you know, and just having a really strong runway with that. I'm curious, what was successful about it? What did you see in it? And what do you feel about people in general and business? How was that helpful? And what are the maybe critical needs of people inside of business that you learned through that experience? Well, first of all, I got some telemarketing experience when in the Great Southern Corporation, you know, before I started my business. And I saw it, it could work. And when I started my business, there was only me. Okay, my wife did help me some on the front end. So, but I mean, it was going to be hard for me to go out and travel and see customers that were all over the Southeast. After a few months, starting my business, I, re I had to work nights at a truck line. So now, how in the world am I going to travel and go out? Okay, there's no way I can go out. 
I've got to do it over the telephone. So I decided, well, I'm, I'm just going to call the customers over the telephone. So I remember um, in early years, I went to the library and they had uh, telephone directories of all the major cities and just go to the uh, safety supply houses, safety descriptors in the, each one of the cities and make a photocopy of that page and come back home and I'd be called. And, you know, they were very reluctant to buy over the phone because they had salesmen calling on them that would show them the product and talk to them about it. And, you know, they like to sell them, they might buy it from him, whatever. It was very difficult to get a customer to buy from you over the phone. But I kept calling some of the same ones over and over, and I, and I, I kept calling new ones. And eventually, I get the customer. Once I got the customer, they saw that the quality of my product was good, that the service was excellent, and our prices were very competitive. So with it, I guess the excellent service, competitive prices, competitive quality, they said, you know, why not give the guy another order? Okay. So then, then it went on from there. And then I had them. I mean, once they liked the service so well, I mean, I had to have competitive quality and competitive prices. Okay. But the service set us apart. So they were getting such better service, they continued to order from. So how many calls were you making a day? Oh, uh, it's hard to remember, but I think there's probably 25 or so a day. Did you like doing it? Uh, not not really. It was really a struggle to do it. I mean, because I was getting rejected a lot. <laughs> you know, nobody likes rejection. I, I didn't handle rejection very well. I don't I had, either. <laughs> but once I, once I realized I, I got customers, you know, I kept, once I got a customer, I kept, kept the customer. I didn't lose customers, okay? So I just kept getting more and more and it kept adding to it. And I, I, I got confidence. And then as, as it progressed, I got, uh, you know, I got added salespeople and they went out and got customers and, and helped grow the business too. So I guess it sounds like you knew what you had to do to get to the next point. You knew what you had to do to survive and you just made yourself every morning on maybe two, three hours of sleep, go make those calls, do it day after day until you were able to, because once you knew you had that relationship, you were going to deliver. Yeah, it, it, it was tough, but, you know, that was, you know, it was really tough for the first uh, year or two after that. I, I mean, I, in this, I guess late in the second year, I realized, yeah, I, I've got a bunch of customers now and I can get more. I just don't have enough product, okay? Now, after I had a several customers um you know i was not a very big business so i did I, you know i had 20 customers that's probably all i could service okay so it was just a matter of service those 20 customers well make a profit on it put that profit back into inventory so i can handle 30 customers and then when i got 30 put that profit back in so i can handle 50. <laughs> yes sir were these experiences early on with harriet was that formative in y'all's relationship and marriage to stay together throughout y'all's entire time thus far. I mean, I worked real. I worked real hard. I deserve. I deserve some of the success for working so hard. But uh, uh, you know, she would make sure that you know if I if I was missing uh, ball games for the, uh, when the kids were younger, teach parent teacher meetings or whatever. You know, I could miss some of them, but I couldn't miss them all. And, and she would rein me in. And I think I've probably told you this story that this gives you a good idea. We 
I think we'd been in business five years. We hadn't been on a vacation, you know. Of course, back in the 50s and 60s, a lot of people didn't take vacations. I mean, you, you know, they just made, they were off work. They just stayed home, you know, they wouldn't really go there much. But anyway, after five or six years, uh, we were talking about, so I hadn't got time to go to Florida, the beach or whatever, you know. And I, and I said, well, hmm. you know, she probably asked me about it a couple of times. And finally, I don't think it was in the summer, but anyway, I think it was in the fall of the year. I said, okay, I got an idea. We're, we're going to go on vacation on Friday. I'll, I'll come home from work and uh, we'll go on vacation. And this is what we're going to do. <laughs> we're we're going to pack. Uh, kids were like six and four. I said, we'll pack up the car, put the kids in and tell them we're going on vacation. We will drive around the interstate <laughs> and uh, to um, go to the other side of town, check into a holiday inn with a swimming pool and tell them we're on vacation. And um, the kids to this day remember that vacation. It was only two and a half days, I think. I think I took off on Monday, but may not even take it off that. I don't know. But anyway, they remember that. They knew that was their first vacation, and we had a great time. Oh, my gosh. Is that the way you wanted it to be then? Like, were you just so consumed with work and, and building the company and responsibilities that you were happy, the family was happy? Well, I would have liked to have gone to taking the week off and gone to Florida, but you couldn't do that when you had a business to run. I just didn't think I could take away. It was I was too vital in my business. I, I mean, I was working really hard my business, and there was not enough people to take up the slack. So my business would suffer or was gone. I couldn't afford for that business to suffer. I just didn't have a management team to run the business. Now, you know, once I developed a management team under me, I mean, then I could take off. And I did. What do you think gave you the ability to evolve, to actually build a large company, to build layers of people to where you could kind of let loose of the reins from a control and micromanagement standpoint where certain people with those tendencies aren't able to kind of evolve to that stage? Well, I think I'm probably unusual because I was a micromanager. Okay, so I, I managed everything and and was to every detail on the front end. Okay, and people thought it was I was always going to be that way, but I ended up you know hiring a, promoting one of the salesmen to sales manager, and he took over the sales. And yes, I might have micromanaged him a little bit, but eventually he uh, he ran he ran that uh, he ran that position very well. So I, I, I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't micromanage anymore, and I did some of the same things with operations managers and the other other managers. Do you think if you look back on it, are there things you would have done sooner, or do you feel like you did it just right? Well, I really don't see anything wrong with the way I did it. Uh, I, I, you know, first of all, as I said earlier, I can't believe it went as well as it did. I mean, you know, uh, if I. Yeah, if I'd ordered from that vendor where I got the medium-sized gloves different, I'd like to have done that up. <laughs> okay. Uh, really didn't make that many missteps. I mean, we, as we probably been this 15 years, we started a factory. I don't remember. It's probably longer, older than that, probably 20 years after we've been in business. We started a factory to make some nitrile disposable gloves in the USA, which was a 
uh, a big flop, okay, and we lost several million dollars in it, you know, but uh, it's just something I did, I was not, I don't know if I, if it was me or what, but I did, I, we, we didn't make a success out of it. Yes, sir. I wish I'd never gone that route, and I, there's a, I started a couple other little divisions that didn't do that well that, you know, I wish, wish I'd never started, started, but, you know, you don't know until you get into them and try Yes, sir. I've heard you talk about modeling and, you know, your ability either through things I've read about you or things I've heard you speak about processes that you enjoy, but your ability to model out, to model out sales revenue, to, to factor in importing, to handle all these things. And I read at one point you talked about that you were leveraged 10 to one. And so it seems like you're obviously very data driven. I'm curious if you can maybe speak to specific benefits that the company has had because of your ability to stick to data, to build systems and to make calls. Like when you were leveraged 10 to one that really paid off, that would have made most people feel too uncomfortable, but you called it and you went for it. Well, first of all, I was, I was really a good math student and I really liked numbers and I study numbers to see trends. And that was very helpful in me predicting sales trends helpful in figuring out how much to order at what time to order. I was good at studying timelines and figuring out the, the proper lead times. So all that stuff made, made me have good decisions on modeling how we purchased and how we budgeted our sales and, and, items and, and that type of thing. So I was very good in that part of the business. And speaking to that, you talked about being leveraged 10 to 1. So it sounds like you're a gambler, not in a in an irresponsible way, but you just broke things down in a very granular way to understand it. 10 to 1, I guess, is a pretty, a pretty good risk. But at that time, the reason I could do it 10 to 1 is I'd gotten a lot of credit to buy goods, which I, I knew I could sell. So it was not that risky. Now, I, I did with some of that uh, leverage that I had. It did cause me problems on a couple of instances. One time I thought I might go bankrupt because I, I got leverage and then I had, we had a recession hit. And I had, I had, I think at the same time I had a, I had a big shipment came in that was held up by customs because of a, a quota issue that was out of my control. And it killed up a lot. It was a good amount of money involved in it. So it strained my finances. And I was worried about making payroll at that time. But but uh, I had a lot of vendor credit. And uh, my vendors worked with me real well. And uh, they trusted me. They gave me extra time. So it was no problem. What kind of advice can you give to what you kept in the forefront of your mind to give you that resiliency and also that optimism just to kind of keep barreling through challenges like this customs issue that we just talked about? Well, uh, as far as advice to entrepreneurs and and future entrepreneurs, I I think that one thing, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you need to save money because money is a key ingredient in starting a business. It's really hard to do it without it. Now, yes, you can borrow money, or yes, you can get partners, but you know, if you got a partner, that means you have to split the profits, 
Okay, so it's a lot better if you can save your own money. I'm telling you, I was tight and I saved a lot of money. I was driving a you know 15 year old car when I started my business, and I didn't spend didn't spend money. My wife and I were very conservative. We didn't we we didn't buy a lot of clothes. We didn't go out to eat a lot. Well, I took sandwiches in to work if, initially, but eventually I got where, like you said, I think I, I just had a snack at lunch. And sometimes I would not even have lunch. I'd say it, it evolved where eventually I didn't have lunch because I wouldn't even think about lunch. I'd be so busy working, I wouldn't think about it. In fact, it would be, it was several times I'd have somebody in my office and it'd be one thirty, and I'd say, Oh my God, I didn't think about it. You hadn't had lunch yet. We've been in here talking about this for two hours. You go have lunch and we'll come back and we'll talk later. I, I forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, uh, I would, uh, yeah, I would encourage them to save money. I would encourage them to, to learn a little bit about, uh, about accounting. Uh, is one thing I think helps a lot when you're starting a business because trying to model your business and to plan for the future, it takes a, a lot of accounting thought on the front end. But it sounds like you are, again, through all these things, through sleepless nights, th- thought you might go bankrupt. You just didn't see any of those things as a reason to stop. You are all in and you you are going to see it to the other side one way or another. I mean, you're thinking that you may, you're thinking you may go bankrupt, but, but I'm, I'm saying, well, I don't want to go bankrupt. I'm going to try to do everything I can to not go bankrupt. And it worked. I mean, you don't just give up because you think you, you think you might go bankrupt. Okay. Hell, if you give up, you're going to be bankrupt. So, uh, you, you got to, you got to try to fight it. I mean, you know, if you're playing basketball and you're down 20 points, you got to keep playing so you can try to come back. What about your work with the Cruise Center and entrepreneurship? I know you're, you've been very involved with Teach for America. You have your own family foundation. I, I was not really involved that much with charities in the first 25 years of my business. And, and I'll tell you why. I was focused on that business. As I told you earlier, I did not, I did not spend time in other endeavors. I was growing that business. And until I got it to a size where I could have other people run it, run the business basically for me, and also where I didn't have to have every cent that I made reinvested. I mean, I mean, we we, we reinvested every cent we ever made, and we took very little money out of the company, and we did that for at least twenty years. Okay, <laughs> I mean, we we didn't spend money. Okay, and. Uh, we kept putting it back in the business because we needed it to grow the business. Finally, you know, the business had grown such that there was no longer I could grow at 80% a year. I could only grow at 15 or 20% a year. And my profits allowed me to grow more than that. So I could take some of those profits out and put them out of ventures or, or, you know, build a new home or whatever it was I wanted to do. And, at that time, I also started thinking about, okay, I need to give back to the city. The city of Memphis has been a great city for me. It's a great distribution center. Also, just just to have a strong desire to, to, to help the less fortunate city. We've got a lot of poor people in the city. I, I would really like to get them better educated so they can get better jobs. So we set up a foundation and with the 
with the uh, mission to do that. And frankly, I have uh, you know started getting involved in, in in a lot of different charities. Not so many that so many on the board, but three or four of them on have been on three or four boards. But but just trying to to help the less fortunate in the city. And I had made a good bit of money. I felt like that I should take some of that and set up. I'd just really be proud that I could set up a foundation with a, a, a large foundation that could give back for the, to the city for many years to come. You know, Taste for America was one of the first organizations that uh, we really got uh, strongly involved with. And, with, and, and uh, I think they've helped supply teachers to the city in some of the most needed schools in the area. You know, they, they don't, they're, uh, they're supplying teachers to the inner city schools, you know, not the private and, and uh, really suburban schools. It's really where they, the uh, economically challenged students are. That's where they supply the teachers. As far as uh, the Cruise Center, that was somebody, uh, somebody at the University of Memphis approached several of us about trying to set up a center for entrepreneurship like some other colleges had done. I liked the idea and and I immediately said, well, shoot, I like this idea. I'll, I'll fund it. So we, um, they, uh, of course, accepted my offer, but then they said, well, we're going to need more than we first thought, so we're going to have to raise some more money. <laughs> so then I said, okay, we'll go ahead and raise the money. They said, oh, oh no, that's not how it works. You, you have to raise some money. You, you can raise some money better than we can. You've got to, you've got to go find people in, that you know to help us raise the money. I mean, they helped a little bit, but not very much. So I said, oh, goodness, this, I didn't realize I was getting into this. i got to be a fundraiser now. <laughs> So anyway, I went to all my friends and explained what we were trying to do to set up the Center for Entrepreneurship. And, you know, I got a, a dozen of my friends to uh, uh, and business acquaintance to invest in the project. And, and they helped me launch the Center for Entrepreneurship, which is in, in my name. Uh, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm happy to have it in my name. We launched that. And uh, it, was a, it was a struggle because um uh, Centers for Entrepreneurship and Universities were a little new at the time, and and we uh, we didn't really have the right staff in place to really get going good. So it took us a little while before we got the right people, and uh, we also didn't have a building we were working on uh, developing uh, getting a space for it. So uh, that took a couple of years. So it was a slow start, but we finally got the right people, got in our building, and we started making success. We We've helped uh, a lot of students learn about entrepreneurship, and we're trying to teach those kids to know how to start a business. And, you know, a lot of them, try, they're trying to start businesses now, and frankly, a lot of their ideas for starting a business are not very good, not very well thought out, but they've learned a lot about how to start a business, how to think about an idea, how to do a, a plan, how to uh, validate their ideas, how to how to find customers, who to get uh, mentoring from for that type of business. And so they learn a lot of this stuff. And the main thing is they've got to learn this entrepreneurial mindset so 
they can either go and start something later or maybe even start something for the company they're working for as a, you know, a division president or something, you know. So so they're getting some really good experience. We get some really good feedback from them. And uh, not only does this help in uh, University of Memphis students, uh, we've gone, uh, we've broadened ourselves a little bit to uh, help some of uh, to involve some of the other universities in this and also involve some of the, the high school students in, in a program too. So it's helping entrepreneurship in in, uh, in Memphis. I just talked to one yesterday and uh, that I invested in three years ago. It, they were uh, Af- two African-American uh, uh, guy, uh, guy and a girl and they just sounded so sharp and all and they had a Sound like a fairly good idea, but I didn't think they had much chance of making it work, truthfully. But I gave, I gave them some money because they come through the University of Memphis and they were sharp and they looked they looked like they were really going. They've been working hard and really trying to do it. So I said, okay, I'm going to give them some money, and I've done this on, on several of them, and uh, most of them have not really turned out that well or are still struggling trying to come up with something. But anyway, this one didn't come back for more money. Even they, uh, they eventually got a little bit more money in different places. They were able to win some funding from some entrepreneur uh, venture campus that were specializing in in minority entrepreneurship and stuff like that, and they won some awards. And they got some money for that. So they keep on going. Three years down the road, they said they wanted to call me and talk to me. And I said, well, send me the current balance sheet and income statement. And I looked at it and I said, well, gosh, it's the one good thing. They got plenty of cash. They, <laughs> they raised, raised $250,000 recently and they still had that money. And, you know, they were burning, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a month. But I said, well, sure, they got enough for the last six months. So uh, maybe they're not calling about cash. But uh, uh, anyway, they didn't have very much income. And, uh, you know, but when I got on the phone with them, they think they've got two huge accounts landed that are that are sort of in this space of trying to help entrepreneurs, uh, people of color entrepreneurs, or whether they're Latin America or whatever. But uh, they're in with some of those, and and it's boy, it looks really exciting. So uh, that was just yesterday. I thought, well, shoot, this may turn out to be a really good investment. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm curious about you. I know you talked about earlier in this conversation, you had your head down, completely focused on one thing for a very long time. And then it seems clear, even the way I feel like I can read your body language, the way you think about entrepreneurship, the way that you're talking about this story, what is it about you that wants you to still go pedal to the metal with your family office, with your work with education, with your work with uh, entrepreneurship, your work with all these different things. Can you maybe talk about the driver for you when you could totally just, you know, be in a beautiful town and and not have to worry about anything? Well, can I go back a second? You mentioned something about me being focused. You hit the nail on the head there when you use that term. You know, when I get into a problem or you know uh, something, I tend to be very focused and and just keep going back through it. And so I don't like to be interrupted. I can't, I don't know if I'm not a good, very multitasker or what, but I like to be able to just think about it and really get in the weeds with it and <laughs> and get deep into it. And I can't, I can't keep switching uh, 
my thinking from one subject to another, okay? <laughs> and I've done that in my business, okay? And I mean, I would sometimes sit in my office for a day, not talking to anybody, trying to work out some kind of prop, okay? <laughs> and I say, I'm saying problem. It, it, it may have been how to, how to improve our shipping service, okay? I mean, but, but I mean, I, or it may be, you know, writing, figuring out what program we needed to conquer this problem, okay? And that type of thing, but I am very focused. I, and I think I did mention it before. Now I remember. It. I mean, I think it's helped me a lot. And I, I think I mentioned before. It's also my wife has said, "Yeah, you're focused on the business, but you got to focus on the family some too." So, and she's right. She, you know, that I have to watch myself there. So it is a double-edged sword, I guess. But anyway, I, I don't want to go pedal to the metal unless you're saying that pedal to the metal includes my sporting activities and, and, and playing. I want a busy lifestyle, okay? What I want to do is more recreation and maybe going to ball games with my grandkids too, but but still that more more of that. But I'm going to stay busy, okay? And I'm going to be busy all the time. I'm going to have a full schedule. I like full schedule. So, you know, I like to be doing something. And, and so even though I say I'm retired, you still got to keep up with a lot of stuff. I mean, I've already sold my company, uh, as you know, uh, you know, Shelby Group or MCR, and you know, Triumph is is uh, is supposed to close uh, October seventh. Uh, the bank that I'm a majority owner in that's supposed to close on October seventh. Uh, so that's a two big two big sales for me. And in fact, I have a, uh, I have another company that's. Uh, we just got a letter of intent on that I'm involved with. It's a pretty good size investment for me. So, and that takes some time. So that's going to get me out of all of those. But still, I'll come up with something. Okay, so it's just like uh, I'm um, I'm helping my brother with a project of his, only helping advise him and trying to get in the weeds a little bit more with uh, maybe some of his accounting, how they're how they're setting things up, and just to give me some advice on that, which. Uh, so, I mean, I'll do something like that. So, I'm going to stay busy one way or the other. Yes, sir. What is it about the things that you're putting your own assets behind when you think about entrepreneurship, when you think about education, when you, th- when you think about opportunity for people that are born into uneasy circumstances? I read on your family office website, race relations, these things. What is it about the future that you care about? And what is it that you're optimistic about and what is it that you're concerned about? And how does that tie into how you put the assets that you have made through your business success to really trying to transform or be a part of transforming a society uh, for the years to come? Well, I, I am concerned about race relations. I, I think that, yes, they've improved over the last 50 years. There's been a lot of improvement there but there's still a lot more room for improvement. There's a lot of biases uh, that are still in, in the in the workplace and everything from churches to clubs and, and sports and everything else. There's a lot of biases, which we shouldn't have. We should be able to look at people without thinking what color they are. So, I mean, I, I, like, I like to see improvement in that area, and I think we will improve. I, I, I mean, I think the... Um, the world and the country is getting better all the time. Not, it's not. <laughs> I know we got ISIS and all that, and all this crazy crap. But, uh, but still, 
I think the world slowly improves. It's, and I think it'll continue to improve. Unfortunately, it comes at a snail's pace, and we'd like to have it speeded up a little bit. And I'd like to help speed it up a little bit, but I do what I can. I just try to try to you know, help with through charities and and uh, just like Bridges in Memphis. They, I think that's a good organization that tries to help race relations. We try to support them, so I'd like to really improve on that. Um, that maybe at least part of the answer to your question was there a part I missed. No, sir. I was just, it seems like through your family office, it's clear the causes that you care about. And it seems through our conversation today, you've taken all this energy and this drive that you still have. And I, obviously, I know it sounds like more recreation and, and not the same pace, but you're trying to do whatever you can to pay it forward, to really try to tr- move the needle with these things in a very specific way. And I know just from my time with you and reading about you, you think through things in a very analytical and data-driven way. So I was just curious to unpack that a little bit and kind of what your specific hopes were and how, and and why you're doing it, and then also how to get a re- the return that you feel like needs to happen on it. Well, I think I'm probably a little selfish with my time. I think that I probably should give more time to charities. I know that the financial from the financial end of it. I'm very proud of myself and my family of what we're doing for the charitable organizations in the city. I think that myself and my family could give more time. I'd like to see that happen. Frankly, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it or not. I just, you know, I'm just older. I would like to take things easier. And I just, uh, you know, I told you I have a lot of focus, but, you know, that takes a lot of time. And, you know, so I, I don't have as much focus on all these charities as I should, truthfully. I'd like to give more time, but I don't seem to have the time. Yes, sir. Well, I think it's very neat, and I, I think it's pretty amazing, the position that you've been in and then the work that you're able to do it. And I also think it's, it's just it's helpful to see how you talked about for three, four decades, keeping locked in on a specific thing, and, and then obviously the payoff on that, and then now, you know, transitioning and then being able to be very intentional about these things. What was it like owning a bank or being the, the majority shareholder in the bank? Was that a good experience or was that a, was it harder than what you thought? Uh, how, how did that go? And what's, what do you think? Would you do it all over again if you could? Um, first of all, I did not want to get involved with the bank. A lawyer friend of mine convinced me that there were some good people going to be on the board of this uh, uh, startup bank, and it would be good to meet these people. I was not uh, very connected in the community because all of my business had been outside the city of Memphis. And uh, I mean, I had a little business in Memphis, but only five or ten percent, maybe five percent, was in Memphis. Okay, so it was not. I was not in Memphis, but so not a lot of people I knew. And I'm not as I, you know, I don't belong to country or didn't belong to country clubs or whatever. So I don't know, know all these people. So, okay, I said, well, it, okay, maybe it's something I should do. I didn't want the liability of a bank because I always heard about, you know, people, bank directors get sued real easy and all this stuff. So I didn't want that either. But, you know, so I, I became a, you know, small investor in the bank along with about a dozen other people, 12 or maybe 15 other people. And uh, wasn't my idea. The uh, One of my attorneys was the one that, mostly his idea and uh, he he uh he and a couple of people got together and said they wanted to start a bank and i said okay i'll invest it so i was an investor for the first couple of years our chairman 
had to leave for some uh, unexpectedly, so they elected me chairman. And uh, I guess that's because I voiced had had been voicing up a lot more than they had than most people in in the board meetings, asking a lot more questions, just trying to understand it. I know a, a little bit about banking, but I don't consider myself to be a great banker by any means. And I'm not really good at going out and getting customers either, as I told you before, especially on bank bank customers was even harder for me because one of the reasons was when we invested in the bank, we, we were planning on um, on building up five-year settlement. So I don't know, I didn't like that idea of getting my people to to, to come to our bank, <laughs> come to our bank and then turn around and sell it and changing their accounts again. Okay. Yeah. I, I've never admitted that to anybody before, but that, that bothered <laughs> me a little bit. But, um, anyway, I don't like getting into other people's business and asking them about their finances and stuff like that too, unless they want to ask me. And so I had a little problem with it, but from an operation standpoint, I did get involved in the bank and, uh, and I, I was real, real good experience. We had a real, we have a real good board and I really enjoyed working with those guys. I'm, I'm glad I did it from that standpoint. From a return standpoint, we had a good return. And I think that our shareholders feel like we had a good return. I, I think we had a good return. It was not what I would have liked for it to be in, especially with all the time that I put into it. I mean, I was not a, I was chairman. I was not an employee of the bank, so I wasn't on any salary. And I spent a lot of time trying to learn the bank and trying to improve it. And uh, so when I think back, I would, I, I think it was a good use of my time. I'll tell you where that comes in a problem. I, I know why I'm having a problem with that now. When you look at what I did with Shelby Group, I made a much bigger return, okay? My return, <laughs> But basically, I was doubling my equity, doubling my equity every year for the first 10 years, wow. doubling your equity. OK, now, you know, in the bank, we may get, you know, 10 or 15 percent return. And that's a good return. You know, uh, that's a good return. But when you compare, <laughs> it doesn't compare. So uh, I think really the bank has been a good return. I should be happy that I was able to do that. Okay, I was disappointed that I couldn't get closer to the doubling my return every year. Because <laughs> you were—I mean, you were—all your time and energy was in it, and you were—you were in control of it, and you saw the opportunity, and so you just had a lot more of a runway, and that's what you're saying. So you're saying that there were some good things about doing it, but from a comparison standpoint, nothing comes close to. Oh, there the is. There's nothing I could ever do that could come close to that. Now, another thing is, as I said, I'm not a banker and I did not, I mean, I got into some of the things in operations, but there was a lot of the areas of the bank that I did not get into. So I didn't, you know, I did make a remark one time that I would have liked to have been a banker at 29 or 30 years old and seen what I could accomplish with banks, okay? I think I could have done real well in the banking industry. I think I could have learned it and done done extremely well. I don't mean I could have done what we did at Shelby Group, okay? But if that opportunity with uh, Shelby Group had not been there and I'd somehow gotten involved in banking, I think I would have done real well and it would have been, had some really good returns and I would have done a lot better than I than I did with this bank here because I, you know, you know, I was 70 years old. I, I should know more, a lot more about banking than I did. I, you know, 
tried to learn it, but I, I still didn't have the same, you know, focus that I had on, on my business, you know, because I had too many other things going on at that point. Yeah. Do you think the future of it, I mean, do you, could you even really start a, a bank the way y'all did then again? Or do you think just the way things have continued to move with technology and less physical footprint and all those things, do you just see the continuation of these very large institutions and the, the flexibility of how banking's done, that things are just only going to continue to progress in the way that they have been and just accelerate? Well, there's a lot of changes, but I think you could definitely start a bank similar to what we started before and not saying it's going to be as easy as it was then. It was a little bit easier then than it will be now, but I definitely think you could do it. You might, you may have to start it by, I say start it, you may have to start it by buying a real small bank just because it's got a charter and, and go from there and stuff like that. But I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get into banking, but I think it definitely could be done. Not going to see it done by me. I'm out of banking. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm retired from the banking industry. Yes, sir. Last couple of questions I got. You were a, a few minutes ago. You were talking about a, a young man and a young woman who had come to you and you wrote them a check for the company they had. But you were talking about how you were observing them and you asked them to send you over their balance sheet and their income statement. But you said their mindset and you were talking about the mindset. When you look at the mindset, I'm sure that you're going to want somebody that embodies the focus and the perseverance and the logic, the way that you've laid out here in our conversation. But can you give any thoughts on the mindset that you try to look and read into someone else when you're making a decision, if you're going to write a check and back somebody? Well, as, as I said before, I'd like to think that they got their head on straight, that they're, they're going to watch their expenses and um, keep questioning things, trying to make sure that they're going about it the right way and that there's any way they can improve it, they can improve it. You know, that they've got the talents that it takes to succeed in that, like uh, in the company, you're talking about the man and woman you were just talking about. I mean, he's got one of them's got some pretty good IT experience. So that's that's helpful in the business he's in. Without it, you have to be hiring that. And, well, you know, it's just harder to uh, to really get your I'd say he gets about more money's worth since he knows something what he's doing. OK, when he has to hire people to do that. I like people with some accounting background. Uh, I like people with good personalities. I like, and I sure want people to be honest. Okay, I'm not, I'm not interested in being lied to. I like for them to be straight. And uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's all that comes to mind. Yes, sir. I read a quote from you. You said entrepreneurship is the driving force behind a vibrant economy by improving efficiencies and by creating new products and services. That seems in line with, you know, the work you've done and the life you've lived, and then also the things that you and your family are supporting now. I'm just curious, why does that mean so much to you? And what is the value that you feel like can give a city or a country when there's people that are continuously trying to achieve that and, and live that out? I mean, I think entrepreneurs are, are a key part of our our ecosystem. And, and we got to have people thinking of new ideas and changing up. You can't keep doing the things the way you've done them in the past. You got to keep making changes and improvements and you got to have a lot of new ideas. I mean, I, I think, yeah, we can, uh, in, in Memphis in particular, uh, yeah, we can, we could probably improve our economy by having some more people start their businesses. Maybe as far as race relations, if we have more successful black business people, maybe that will even, uh, maybe that'll help race, race relations. So, you know, I'm just, uh, 
and uh, they'll get more respect, okay? So we, I like to help those people get more respect. One of the ways that they do that is to have more businesses of their own, and be uh, uh, be better educated and, and uh, improve family life. Yes, sir. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, then go to drivenbypodcast.com and send me a message. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.